0: It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After this episode, go to ChristianQuestions.com to check out
1: other episodes, Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more. Today's topic is, is following Christ the same as following Christianity? Coming up in this episode... Like it or not, Christianity is deeply divided. It would be easy to pick and choose which version we most like and follow it because it suits us. However, in its original state, Christianity is a single set of beliefs and practices. Is my idea of Christianity the same as the one Jesus taught us? Here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years, and Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for this episode?
0: First Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere
1: in every church. When someone says that they're a Christian, their claim can be easily interpreted in a variety of ways. Unfortunately, following the name of Christ has been a dramatically devalued description of religion over many centuries. Think, think back to the dark ages. For the sake of saving souls in the name of Christ, the church mercilessly hunted, tortured, and killed those they determined to be non-believers. Think about the now smorgasbord of choices we now have available. We can choose a brand of Christianity that suits our lifestyle and fulfills our preferences. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ was not always this way. In the time of Jesus and the apostles, it meant something higher and had an eternal purpose. The question we all need to ask ourselves is simple. Is my chosen brand of Christianity in complete accord with Jesus' original teachings?
2: we're dropping in on specific teachings of Jesus and asking what churches in general are doing with these teachings. We're big supporters of topical Bible study and aren't looking to cherry pick scriptures to fit a specific theology. And we have scripturally explored all of these topics in depth in other podcast episodes. So here we're just looking at the words of Jesus and the apostles as a high level overview. And again, our main question to consider on all these points will be is following Christ The same as following Christianity.
0: We are going to start by looking at some of Jesus' teachings on life and death. John 5, 25-29, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live.
2: What exactly did Jesus mean by saying those who are dead will hear his voice? Because if they're dead, how can they hear
0: Let's continue because the context defines it for us. Verses 26 through 29. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so we gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment.
2: Okay, so based on this, Jesus here clearly equates death to the tomb, or grave, in some translations it says. The dead hear the voice of Jesus because they're awakened. What does the the, uh, Greek word dead here mean?
0: Well, let's define the word died. A couple of definitions from the Thayer's Greek-English lexicon. One that has breathed his last, lifeless, spiritually dead, destitute of a life that recognizes and is devoted to God, because given up to trespasses and sins, inactive
1: as respects doing right. So while this word primarily does mean dead, as in lifeless, it can be used, according to those other definitions, figuratively as well. Let's look at Luke chapter 9, verse 60. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury the dead,
0: But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Let the dead, even the living, are figuratively dead, undergoing the dying process. Bury thy physical dead. John 20, verse 9. For as ye yet, they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Here, dead is literal.
1: So, we have a couple of examples. You've got that figurative death because you're dying in Adam, and then the actual physical real death uh, shown applied to Jesus here. Without any other scriptural support, looking at these scriptures in John 5 28 and 29, Jesus seems to be teaching that those who have died are not, they're not, they're not disembodied conscious souls floating about in some other location. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what he's, he's not saying, that you've got this immortal thing. He's talking about something different. How do we know? He's talking about actual death, lifelessness. We know because we go back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it teaches us that human life was created in God's image, and man became a soul, man became a being. Genesis
0: 2-7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being soul or being is the Hebrew word nephesh which means properly a breathing creature
2: this means we have this straightforward equation first thing right in Genesis a body plus the breath of life equals a living creature that means a person is a soul they don't have a soul but does this refer only to humans
0: No, it doesn't. And this is interesting. Humans and animals are all referred to as souls, nephesh, Genesis 1, 20 and 21. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creatures, same word for soul, moving creatures that hath life and full that may fly above the earth and in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature, same word for soul living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after
1: his kind, and God saw that it was good. So when you look at a scripture like that, and it just very casually, comfortably uses the exact same word to, divine, to, to, to define a human being and a, an animal being. You say, okay, there's an an equality in the fact that they're both beings, exactly the same word. Grasping this simple and original understanding of what we are as human beings will help us see that Jesus' own teachings exactly, precisely reflected God's original purpose and his original design.
0: Everything we believe should reflect God's original purpose and design, and at no time did Jesus contradict God. Genesis 2:15 through 17 Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. God said, you will die. Satan told Eve she wouldn't really die. Who are you going to believe? God, who can't lie, or Satan, the father of lies. The dying process began because of sin, and Adam and Eve dived within the thousand-year day. Remember in 2 Peter 3.8, it tells us a day of the Lord is this, a thousand years. Well, after death, they were no longer a soul, a being.
2: But the question becomes, what's death? Clearly, Satan lied because we all see death all around us, but is it just a gateway to another plane of existence? Is death for just an instant, and then after we pass through it, are we really even more alive than before floating around in some place?
1: No. It's that simple. Really? No. See, here's, <laughs> here's, here's the thing, and here's the misrepresentation, if you will. In Genesis, it says, in the day you eat, you will surely die. It doesn't say you will surely go through the gateway of death to some other kind of existence. It says you will die. It becomes a stopping point, not a gateway. It is, okay. it is a, an absolute final destination. And the reason we say final, now we understand the resurrection and all that, but we say final because when God said that, there was no provision for anything beyond that. You will die. And, it, and, 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 and the sense of that is that's the end of that story. So, death is not, according to Scripture, some kind of gateway. It is a final, final destination. This teaching about death being a final destination is clearly, plainly repeated throughout the New Testament. So, let's go to a, a couple of Scriptures in the New Testament. First, let's go to Romans chapter 6, verses 22 to 23.
0: But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to god you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord
2: okay so for the wages of sin is death unearthing an old skeleton proves that our bodies die and stay dead but humankind has somehow recalibrated death again as this instant gateway for a part of us, our soul or spirit to physically be somewhere else in the afterlife. Literally, we hear about these pearly gates in heaven and we do believe at Christian questions in heaven as a destination. How does that work? If death is the cessation of our existence and we as a living soul die,
1: it works because as we read in the previous scripture in John, you are called from death, the state of non-existence to life, in heaven, if you were a true follower of Christ and a Christian and begotten by God's spirit and all of that. So it is, again, it's not a gateway. It's a destination. But here's the thing. Jesus, by paying the ransom, created an opportunity for another destination after death. And Jesus is the sole reason why you get called out of non-existence to life. So it's, we have to see it the way the scriptures have written it
2: so that means there's a new provision that was absolutely
1: right okay right it doesn't change the meaning of death it simply means that god's plan provides another step because jesus died for the sins of adam and that gives life where there was none and when you want to talk about a miracle that's about as big a miracle as you can actually ever ever find so let's look at one other scripture along these same lines. 1 Corinthians 15,
0: 21-23 For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as an Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at
1: his coming. And again you see this new provision being laid out, as an Adam all die. It doesn't say they all come to some gateway, because as in Christ, they will all be made alive. That tells you that death was a, a, an absolute destination. But Jesus says, wait, there's another destination. I can bring you back to life through God's power and God's plan. And there's an order to that resurrection. So it's a thrilling thing to look at when you understand that death is the cessation of life. But God's plan says, not for long, because of Jesus and only because of jesus and jonathan i really appreciated what you said earlier are we going to believe god in what he wrote in the scriptures who can't lie or satan who is the father of lies like "Ah, Eve? you really won't die yes you will because god said so we need to keep things clear along those lines so are my christian beliefs god driven or are they man-made
0: The simple but profound defining of the nature of man is consistent throughout all of the Bible. Jesus simply reiterated what God had put in place, and in so doing, he assured us that he did, in fact, come to save every man, woman, and child from death in Adam. Am I willing to embrace this simple truth, even if it means I must let go of a different
1: perspective? This is a hard question. Am I willing to embrace the simple truth of Scripture, even if it's going to cost me something I've been very comfortable with for a very, very long time? Jesus' words can be much more easily understood if we accept them within the context of Scripture and Scripture only. Christians differ greatly
0: regarding what Christianity will cost you versus the abundance it gives you, who is right.
1: This point can be a major bone of contention, as the question is plainly about what we get as Christians. If we honestly look at the words of Jesus, they give us a very straightforward answer. And the answer is, yes, you will be on the receiving end of many good things. But, however, take note, these good things are very different From the good things you previously expected. These good things you will receive, according to Jesus himself, are very different from the good things that you would have previously expected.
2: Is following Christ the same as following Christianity? And we're really looking here at the so-called prosperity gospel where people equate faith and having the Holy Spirit with physical wealth and health.
0: As we look at Jesus revealing himself as Messiah, we will observe a curious thing. Often when he shows something good, he also reveals its price as well. Luke 9, 18 through 23. Let's start with 18 through 20. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them saying, who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and the others say, Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. This was a remarkable revealing of what every faithful Jew had waited for for generations.
1: You're right. This was the big thing. It was the waiting for Messiah. Why? Because Messiah was deliverer. It was taking you out of the difficulty you were in because you could be with the deliverer. It was the equivalent in those days of winning the lottery. I I, but I think even better because it, it not only would deliver you personally, but it would deliver all of those around you. So this is a big, wonderful, wonderful, almost unbelievable announcement that's right before them. But now let's go back to the scripture because Jesus says okay, uh you know you know Peter says you're the Christ, the Son of God Here's Jesus' reaction to this. Listen carefully.
0: But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day.
2: Think about how radical and confusing this would have been for the disciples. The Jewish people had been waiting thousands of years in expectation of the Messiah to lead them, Here, the promised Messiah finally comes in their lifetime. Surely he will lead us out from under this Roman domination and we'll all be victorious. Wait, what do you mean you're going to suffer and be killed? (laughs) You're supposed to save us. Hosanna and save us now.
0: And this was not a time for celebration. This was the time to pay the ransom price. The price of Messiahship that Jesus revealed was enormous and unexpected. Verse 23, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me.
2: Wait, what? (laughs) You're the Messiah who's going to suffer and die, but now we have to take up our cross and suffer and die with you. What's wrong with this picture? The Messiah was supposed to bring abundance for us.
0: They didn't understand that before Jesus would come as the victorious lion of the tribe of Judah, he first had to come as the sacrificial lamb of God.
1: This is the classic, what's wrong with this picture, like you said, Julie, because you're looking at this saying, wait, Messiah, everything I know about Messiah is good and wonderful and full of deliverance and happiness and healing. And Jesus is telling them, "It's it. it that's true, but it's not immediate. And There is a process, and when Jesus reveals that, yes, I am the Messiah, he says, don't tell anybody, because there is a lot of suffering that comes about at the very beginning. This is the comparison between human expectation, Jewish human expectation, and spiritual reality. Everything's not revealed, and now Jesus is filling in the details, and you're sitting there going, what is going on with this? It makes sense. Jesus is teaching us. It is not the immediate gratification and blessing that you think it is. Now, not to say there isn't gratification and blessing, but it's a very different thing. In the midst of Jesus preaching and healing, he gently but firmly reminded a scribe who proclaimed willingness to follow him just how uncomfortable it can be. So he's going along with his teaching. You've got this scribe. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were generally against Jesus. So you'd think... That if you've got a scribe saying, Master, I'll follow you wherever you go, he would like lay out the red carpet, and like, okay, come on and let me make you comfortable. Can I get you something to drink? You know, that kind of a, of a sense. Here's what Jesus says. We're looking at Matthew chapter 18, uh, eight, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verses 18 through 20.
0: Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head.
2: That's not a good sales pitch. (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't see any indication of abundance here yet. And at this point, Jesus doesn't even have a place to sleep or a place to call home. Following him might not be the life of ease that we might have thought it would be.
1: And so for this scribe, you wonder what he was thinking, like, what? But see, Jesus was about the accomplishment of the will of God in God's time. He wasn't going to put something that was coming later now. And he, as we began speaking about this part of our, of our conversation, he would tell you good things, but then he'd add the price because he was honest and had the integrity of fulfilling God's will in its entirety. Jesus had much, much more to say about the cost of following him. The next scripture is after Jesus had spoken with the rich young ruler, who, remember, went away sorrowfully because he was attached to his wealth. Remember, he came running up to him. What do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, follow the law. And he says, I've done that. And Jesus loves him and says, okay, give up everything you have. And the man goes away sorrowfully. Here, after he leaves, here is what Jesus says. Jesus says, To his followers mark chapter 10 verses 23 to 27
0: and Jesus looking around said to his disciples how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God the disciples were amazed at his words but Jesus answered again and said to them children how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God.
2: Let's take a step back. By Jewish standards, you'd think that this young man would have been on the top of the food chain in Jesus's new way. Exactly. He's he's apparently blessed by God because he's got wealth. He's young. He successfully employed people. Today, he would probably be called an influencer with a lot of followers. And here he was, sincere and ready to follow Jesus. Perfect. In the Old Testament, Israel, as a physical nation, was promised physical blessings. Obey God, and you are physically blessed with land, family, and prosperity. This was a reasonable expectation that it would continue like this.
1: It was, Absolutely was. And this conclusion that Jesus drew was likely very bewildering for his followers, as God had set from the very beginning that they would get blessing in basket and in story if they were faithful to him. This is confusing. This doesn't seem to make sense.
0: So you were saying we could possibly fall into the same trap of expectations versus what Jesus is teaching us. Jesus said, follow me is Different, higher, and costly. The reward is the most phenomenal thing you could ever imagine, and your reward is in heaven. So I guess the question is what have we been taught? Is it in harmony with the words of Jesus?
1: And again, you look at this, and from a Jewish mind's expectation in that time, you understand why everybody would be like, wait a minute, this isn't making sense. So what happens? Well, Peter happens naturally Peter speaks up he's you know he's like okay I'm confused Lord I need to understand this because everybody's wondering and Peter has the courage to say it Peter speaks up and Jesus gives an answer that's somewhat comforting but still a little confusing leave it to Jesus to be that way Jesus answer here that he gives is often and easily taken out of context now remember these are the verses right after the event with the rich young ruler Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. This is a difficult thing. And now he goes. we go into Mark chapter 10, verses 28 to 30.
0: Peter began to say to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life.
2: Finally, here <laughs> comes the abundance, right, Rick, for the followers of Jesus. We get a hundred times more in the present age. Houses, family, land, there's no dispute because we have direct confirmation from the Apostle Peter.
0: But didn't you hear what I read? It comes along with
1: persecution did you remember that persecution <laughs> but so, with wealth <laughs> okay we need to put all of this in order because we have to understand the import of what jesus is actually teaching us here the rich man remember this is in the context of the, the rich young ruler who had followed the law couldn't part with his riches and walked away from jesus remember he was he had those riches now is jesus saying that the poor would become rich no he's not He's not, because the rich man was already rich and he was following the law. That's why Jesus loved him, okay? So you gotta say, wait, there, there, there's something that needs to be understood. Jesus is saying that what we, are, what we physically are willing to leave behind will be replaced with the same kind of advantage, but this time it will be on a spiritual level. It won't be what you are looking for, but it will be similar but higher. Well, what do we mean by that? Let's take a look at this from a spiritual perspective and try to put it in order. Julie, let's get started.
2: All right, so it said we'd get a hundred times. A hundred times, one of the things was houses. We ask, how many homes did the apostles and disciples stay in when spreading the gospel?
1: Okay. How many did they own? (laughs) Well, and that's the point. How many did they stay in? Where did they go? And how many did they own? We don't read a word about any of the apostles' having being being multiple uh, owners of multiple pieces of real estate. We just don't get that sense because it wasn't true. See, if the followers of Jesus were supposed to get all of those houses, you'd think that Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, they would be the ones leading the way, but none of them did. So Jesus is either lying by saying, you'll get all this stuff, or he's spiritualizing it saying, What you will receive in terms of homes is a wonderful welcome in places, in different countries by the body of Christ. Let's continue.
0: Well, Jesus talked about family and it increases. So how broad does the family of every dedicated disciple of Christ become?
1: It's a family. It's not children. It's a family. It's the family of the body. And they had wherever they went They had that sense of being part of the same family. And if you were in Thessalonica or in Jerusalem, you were followers of Christ. And I know, Julie and Jonathan, you both know that when you travel to a, a different state in the United States, and you know, brethren, you are welcome in their home. They treat you like their family absolutely that's exactly what jesus is saying there's this family unit that's spiritual that will essentially blow your mind by how big it is a hundred times yes jesus didn't talk about physical family he talked about spiritual family next
2: well the next thing he talked about was farms and you wonder uh, the spiritualization of that is how many places of growth development and nourishment did jesus's disciples have
1: you don't read about the apostles having hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres of land.
2: Right, that they got because they were followers of Jesus.
1: Right. <laughs> what you read about is the cultivation of the word of God through them and with them. And so you see that they, they they the apostle Paul, went from place to place and set up churches. Churches, and they were places of development, of nourishment. That's what this is talking about. It's talking about the growth of the actual true discipleship of christ and then jonathan you were very specific about mentioning persecutions what about that
0: yeah well wait what you know abundance of persecutions (laughs) wait a minute Uh, what true christian doesn't pay a price for
1: these spiritual blessings and that's what jesus always does he tells you there is beauty here there's always a price but it, it it's not going backwards this is actually how spirituality develops Just look at the life of Jesus, look at the life of the apostles, and then look at ourselves.
2: So real quick, so you don't leave a house and get it replaced with a bigger house. Right. You get it replaced with the household of faith, and you don't leave your family and you get new kids. (laughs) You get the brotherhood. Right. So everything is spiritualized.
1: Absolutely. And it's so big, and it's so powerful. And what does history tell us
0: about how the apostles ended up? Well, they were hunted down and killed for the most part. They were not the cream of society. You know, what did they have? They had the message of good news for all people and an amazing support group of a family in Christ. They got exactly what Jesus said they would get, spiritual blessings with
1: persecutions. Great point. And this is why we need to look at the Scriptures and understand the import of Jesus' teachings. It is a beautiful thing, but it's not what everybody expected. Now, staying in the same context, the very next event recorded in Mark added to the sobriety of what following Jesus really meant. I mean, Jesus doesn't stop there with persecutions and talking about previously, you know, the the difficulties. Mark 10, 32 to 34.
0: They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, and scourge him, and kill him, and three days later, He will rise again.
2: Wow. Jesus sure isn't telling his apostles that they're going to need a team of real estate agents (laughs) and bankers to handle all their newfound wealth. To say the gospel promises abundance for faithful followers misrepresents what Jesus actually said. The Christian is again and again promised spiritual rewards, not earthly gain. And for our listeners, please don't fall for this. The only ones getting rich are the preachers asking for your money.
1: We really need to understand that the spiritual blessing far outweighs the physical. And Jonathan, you said it earlier, it's eternal and it's heavenly. You can't, there is zero comparison between those things. So as we as we wrap this piece up, are are, are my Christian beliefs God-driven, or are they man-made?
0: The idea that true Christianity is about a life with physical abundance is an idea that is founded on scriptural misinterpretation with a likely dose of wishful thinking. The whole point of discipleship is to follow Jesus who lived nowhere and had nothing and only focused on the fulfilling of God's will. Am I willing to embrace this simple truth even if it means I must let go of a more comfortable perspective?
1: Even if I have to let go of something that I want and I like, am I willing to follow it? Even though it's humanly uncomfortable, following Jesus does bring us spirituality and blessings that are nowhere else possible.
0: With basic biblical doctrine and a sacrificial life in place, what else should a true disciple of Jesus strictly adhere to?
1: Our next consideration regarding the teachings of Jesus will focus in on the reverent mentality required to keep the true church in an attitude of sound spirituality. In Jesus' time, it was easy for the Pharisees to let things slip into a a complacent and self-serving pattern. Jesus' response to this teaches us exactly what not to do don't try this at home what when you look at the actions of the Pharisees here
2: and if any of our listeners want to go deeper into any of these mini topics that we're bringing up search at christianquestions.com or get our CQ rewind show notes at the website our app or our YouTube channel and we will list the episodes that we recommend for step-by-step scriptural reasoning to springboard your studies on any one of these points we're bringing up. The main question we've been asking is, is following Christ the same as following Christianity? And it seems like some of Christianity today is more focused on social and political aspects and a feel-good message. Is that what Jesus taught?
0: Jesus stood for godly righteousness and never anything less. This became apparent when he drove the money changers from the temple, John 2, 13-17. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your
1: house will consume me. Now, there's a whole lot to say about this event. Just to to sum it up very quickly, Jesus created... Chaos. Why would Jesus do that? Because he walked in and he saw them making the temple a place of business. It was an inappropriate use of a sacred place, and he would not have anything to do with it. And so he created the chaos to get them to stop doing what they were doing. And he gave them a very plain warning do not make my father's house this place of business. And that's a principle that we're going to pick up on.
2: So we looked at a Bible commentary by Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown on these words, House of Merchandise, and then he said this, There was nothing wrong with the merchandise, but to bring it for their own and others' convenience into that most sacred place was a high-handed profanity which the eye of Jesus could not endure.
0: Did the religious leaders get a cut of money from the selling of animals used for sacrifices? I wonder. First, they made it a house of business, and second, they made it a den of thieves. Could this be a parallel to some Christian churches today?
2: That's a great question. In other words, don't take what's sacred and dilute it with that which is common. In my opinion, we're becoming very casual as a society. The way we dress, the way we work, the way we talk, the way we invoke God and Jesus' names into everyday conversation mixed with foul language the expression nothing is sacred anymore is something to consider.
1: We we really do want to consider that. And do we ever contaminate the environment of our study and worship with worldly activities? We want to be careful. Don't make sacredness regular business activity. We need to understand now. Let's look at let's look at some practical applications here. Christianity was established long before church buildings were established with the simplicity of meeting together where they could without the physical responsibilities of building ownership. This early Christian example very, very much followed the pattern that Jesus set of meeting followers wherever they were.
2: For the early Christians, worship wasn't about the place that they met. You know, Jesus was famous for teaching people wherever he happened to be, on the road or outdoor spaces, as well as in synagogues. And Christians met where there was space, opportunity, and peace. Acts 2.46 talks about the early Christians meeting in the temple, which was likely somewhere on the temple grounds and in their houses. Acts 20.20 says the Apostle Paul taught from house to house. Romans 16.5 and 1 Corinthians 16.19 talk about church and individual houses. And Acts 19.9 tells us Paul and the disciples met at a school, a school of Tyrannus, I believe it was called.
0: Well, in fact, Christians typically met in homes for about the first 300 years of Christianity, likely due to religious persecution. Public church buildings weren't established until Constantine legalized Christianity with the Edict of Milan in the year 313.
2: The Jewish Christians are leaving behind the law and its rituals. The Gentile Christians are leaving the pagan temples to false gods. Both groups were to leave their past and follow something new. Just because the early Christians didn't initially own church buildings, it's likely, like you said, because of this persecution, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't thousands of years later, but we are saying that a church building is not necessary for effective worship, and it requires focus, money, time, maintenance, insurance, care, and so on.
0: The opulence of church buildings today with all the gold, artwork, stained glass, and statues is so contrary to Jesus and the disciples.
1: What happened? Think of all the expense. How sad. We want to get the principle. We want to get the principle here. Jesus said, don't make my father's house a place of business. And what we're suggesting is the simplicity of Christianity at its origin be replicated everywhere all the time in every circumstance by every christian and unfortunately we're not seeing that nearly as much as we'd like to and and when we look at that we say you know what would jesus think about the way that we meet we got to ask ourselves questions like that to get ourselves to think
0: and the question we have to ask ourselves is do we focus on attaining and maintaining the physical aspects of our
1: fellowship to the detriment of our spiritual maturity. And that's the key. Jesus was protecting the spirituality of the temple when he said, out of here, don't turn my father's house into a place of business. So we want to keep that first and foremost in our minds. Now with that, let's think about the structure of our Christian leadership— we talked about the structure of how we meet. Now let's look at the structure of our Christian leadership. After Jesus, there were the apostles, and they, the apostles, set up a unique process for attaining and maintaining Christian leadership. That process was not a typical business-like approach, and even different than the Jewish structure of spiritual leadership. This was something Different. This is something that you don't see just happening anywhere, and this is how Christianity got its beginning.
0: Christians were given overseers or elders to shepherd the flock. Peter explains their character in First Peter five one through four. The elders who are among you, I exhort. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the, that glory that will be revealed shepherd the flock of God which is among you serving as overseers not by compulsion but willingly not for a dishonest gain but eagerly nor as being lords over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock and when the chief Shepherd appears you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away the glory comes later not before the great Apostle Peter who at Pentecost witnessed boldly to the truth and later also opened the door for Gentile Christians, Peter is saying,
1: elders, I'm just like you. I'm a fellow elder. There's a a tremendous lesson there in that amazing humility. You remember Peter is being brash early, early on, but you see this incredible humility that says, look, we are the same. And you have this sameness that is supposed to be spread out throughout the gospel. That's the message that Peter is writing to all of the prospective church. That means us now down at the end of this age. So let's just wrap up a couple of things that the apostle was saying uh, here in 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4. Julie?
2: Some observations. He's saying, serve not because you must or you have to, but out of a willing heart. Serve not for money, but out of sheer eagerness. And serve not in a dominating way, but rather as a living example of Christlikeness. likeness
1: what he's saying is serve with the heart of one who just wants to honor god you know proverbs 23 uh, 26 says my son give me thine heart this is the way to best honor and serve god it's got to be from the it's not about what i get it's about what i give it's about having that loyalty and that dedication we want to emulate that especially when we look at our Christian leadership. And we've seen that. It's a very, very humble thing so far. Now let's take a look at the decision process for determining leadership in early Christianity. Context of our next verse is Paul and Barnabas, they're on a missionary journey. And what's going to be said in this verse is almost like, it's a, it's a, it's a by-the-way statement, but when you listen to the by-the-way statement, you'll learn a whole lot about appropriate Christian process. Acts 14, 21 to 23.
0: And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. The word for ordained means... To be a hand reacher or voter by raising the hand that is generally to select or appoint the only other use of this word ordained is found in second corinthians 8 18 and 19 and we had sent them titus the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches and not only that but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind. The congregation had the power to elect because they were familiar with the members and could see the fruits of the Spirit. Is this contrary to what we're used to? This comes down to reliance on the Spirit of God and not on the organization of man.
2: I think the point here is we need to take a hard look at the principle from Jesus of not making my father's house a place of business. Compare that to Christianity worldwide today with its wealth, its leaders appointed for life from the top of the organization down and without effective checks and balances to prevent all kinds of abuses, financial, emotional, spiritual, sexual. It's just the headlines are a nightmare.
0: As we have learned from Saul of Tarsus, he was taught by the school of Gamaliel to become a Pharisee. Today, most Christian organizations use seminaries to develop pastors. This is not what's being described in the scriptures. Are we replicating tradition or replicating the true origin of Christian history?
2: Are we making our sacred worship a place of business or is it about honoring God through Christ in a simple yet honorable way? Jesus said, stop making my father's house a place of business.
1: And and as we look over these things, folks, you're listening to this and thinking, wow, you guys are being awfully critical. Well, yeah. Yeah, we are. Why? Why would we be? Because the simplicity of the gospel and its organization is taught to us in Scripture. Why would we go elsewhere if we already have the instructions right there in the Scriptures? And we are just putting it out there to say, this is how Jesus set us up. We owe him our allegiance to follow it the way he put it in place. So the question we ask ourselves again, are my Christian beliefs God-driven or are they man-made?
0: Jesus was radical. As he laid out the foundation for what Christianity would look like, he continually stepped above and beyond all other worldly systems. Why? Because this was be a spiritual church it was to be higher and more holy than anything that had we had ever seen before am i willing to embrace this elevated standard even if it means i must let go
1: of a more physical pleasing environment we have to ask ourselves am i willing to go the extra distance and actually follow christ Or do I like it where I am in sort of a half-and-half sort of situation? And just a hint, half-and-half never does get it done. The fundamental lesson of not mixing our higher spiritual calling with mundane human ways and means, that can be a lesson that's hard to learn. We now need to
0: delve into our basic morality as Christians. Did Jesus teach us a higher level or standard than the Jewish law?
1: Good question. Now, this piece of our conversation is one that can and will likely bring discomfort. Well, maybe we already brought some discomfort, but stay tuned. Here comes some more. (laughs) Because we live in a time of overwhelming compromise and personal freedom, gauging what is moral has become an exercise of individual choice. As Christians, our moral choices, by definition, should be based on what Jesus taught and nothing less
2: is following christ the same as following christianity
0: jesus stood for the highest standards of behavior on every level he taught us to know what the acceptable standards are and then
1: to raise the bar higher let's look at some examples the sermon on the mount the sermon on the mount is filled with examples of this raising of the bar jesus in, in, this, in this Sermon on Mount, we're just going to touch on a few things. First thing, Jesus taught us how to handle those who may speak out against us. and This is in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12.
0: Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you.
2: <laughs> you're blessed if you're persecuted. Well, that's an interesting promise.
1: It is an interesting promise, and it's an abundant promise. Now, you want abundance? Blessed are you if you're persecuted, because it says, Great is your reward in heaven. Think about how Jesus is framing this. It's not when you're persecuted, go get them. That's not what it is. That's our human reaction. But we are supposed to be able to rise above that and be at this level that says, I will absorb such things because Jesus absorbed such things. That's one small lesson. Let's go to another one. Jesus taught us how to stand up for godly righteousness, even with our enemies. Matthew chapter 5, again, chapter 5, verses 43 to 45.
0: You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Well, he's saying, be
1: kind and gracious. This is what elevates you and makes you different. And it's interesting. He says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor. Now that came from the Old Testament and hate your enemy. That was kind of added uh, along the way to, to Jewish thinking. And he's saying, I know this is what you're used to but here is what I'm telling you. He's talking to us about the morality of our reactions and responses. And he's saying, okay, you've got enemies. A lot of us do. Jesus Jesus had them lining up, all right? And he's saying to them, pray for those. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Put them in a different category. When you think about it, Jesus died for each and every one of his enemies. And as they were whipping him and mocking him and crucifying him, he was dying for them. That's our example. That's the kind of morality in relation to those that don't like us. That's how we should be responding. That's not easy physically, but it is spiritually what we're called to be, what we're called to do look at another lesson jesus taught us how to handle sin the sins of desire so that it will not become sinful actions matthew 5 this time verses uh verses uh 27 to 29
0: and this is from the weymouth translation you have heard that it was said thou shalt not commit adultery but i tell you that whoever looks at a woman and cherishes lustful thoughts has already in his heart become guilty with regard to her If therefore your eye, even the right eye, is a snare to you, tear it out and away with it. It is better for you that one member should be destroyed rather than your whole body should be thrown into Gehenna, meaning complete destruction.
2: Obviously, Jesus is using an idiom, which is an expression used to say something that means something else. We're not supposed to literally tear out our eyes in order to prevent looking at something that we shouldn't be looking at. The point is Jesus elevated the standard of the old law, which was hard enough. Now being a true follower of Christ means it's not enough not to physically commit adultery. Our mind controls our body. Our actions are a result of our thoughts. And our minds are to be sanctified, set apart, and transformed. So we're not to compromise even our thoughts. Now that's an elevated standard.
1: It is. And and I really love the way the Weymouth translation said this whoever looks at a woman and cherishes lustful thoughts. When you cherish something, you you give it a lot of attention. You hold it close to you. Look, thoughts go through the minds of everybody. The question is, what do I do with that thought? And Jesus is telling us unequivocally, chase it out. Replace it with something good, something different. Whatsoever is true, lovely, of good report. Think on these things, not on those things. This is the Christian standard. Folks, don't make a mistake of thinking, I can think what I want because nobody can see. God mm-hmm. knows, and that is not at all Christ-like. We need to rise above those things. Let's look at another lesson from Matthew 5. I'll tell you, Matthew 5, we could talk about for weeks. It's amazing. Another lesson. Jesus taught us the sacred importance of the marriage covenant. Matthew five thirty-one to 32. It was said,
0: whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Don't minimize this commitment. Our marriage commitment is sacred before God. Does my church tolerate lower standards of morality than what Jesus is telling us? That means
1: we aren't abiding by that which is sacred. The marriage covenant is the highest promise on the human plane that we can make. It is a promise before God and witnesses that says, till death do us part. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees who found ways to make it a lot easier to get out of it because you don't like the way your wife does this or that or the way your wife looks or whatever it is. And he's saying, that is not the intention you must stand higher. And folks, look, in the world in which we live, this is tough because you're looked upon as foolish. Don't get along. Of course you should divorce. Start over. No, no, not according to the word and will of God and the words of Jesus himself. Do not make a mistake on this. Do not take this lightly. This is a very, very significant, sacred promise that Jesus says you hold to now look this is just a small sampling really tough but a small sampling of jesus teachings and it set a pattern of thinking and behavior in all areas of our lives the rest of the new testament verifies what jesus said in matthew 5 as this as uh, as these these kinds of thoughts are critical to us actually following jesus let's go to ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 to 5 jonathan let's just start with one and two
0: Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma.
1: There's such beauty in those words, imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love. Christ loved you. Uh, We are this beautiful, wonderful offering, and you get excited about that, and you get inspired by that. Well, here's the other part of how that all works. Jonathan, verses 3 to 5.
0: But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God.
2: Let me just reread those. No immorality, impurity, greed, filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting. Does the Christianity I adhere to allow or even encourage any aspects of these things in any way? Are certain attitudes or behaviors or conversations eh, not that big of a deal? So look (laughs) look around your spiritual environment. Are standards being lowered step by small step? And if so, maybe we're not in the right place.
1: And we have to be really serious about that question, Julie. It, it's it's so important to say, what is my spiritual envir- environment willing to tolerate, willing to turn away from, willing to just let slide so that we can keep the numbers up or whatever it is that we want to do here? Is it being, are we being in 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 contradiction to or in in harmony with the words of jesus and all that he stood for it's such an important aspect here the beauty of all of this is that wherever we come from and where whatever we may have done in our past can be put in perspective and forgiven as we move forward to be a true disciple of jesus
0: just ask the apostle paul acts 26 9 through 11 I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them, often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. This sounds just like what happened in the Dark Ages.
1: Yeah, the Apostle Paul was a precursor to it, it seems like. You know, he had, he had quote-unquote, godly zeal. He was serving God in his own mind. Now, he was wrong, he was immoral by doing those things, but he was, he was chasing Christians down because of that. And, and you think about that, no Christian— no Christian would have naturally trusted such a Christian hunting machine as Saul of Tarsus. <laughs> you, you saw him and you would run the other way because you knew what was coming. Yet, yet the brotherhood learned to believe in Paul, the apostle, and follow him as he followed Christ. And that's the entire key to this. Follow him as he followed Christ. Such is the power Of forgiveness and the calling to Christ if we've made mistakes in the past we can put those back in order if we follow the pattern that Saul of Tarsus followed and became the Apostle Paul first John 2 1 6 helps us with that
0: my little children I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin and if anyone sins we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous and he himself is the propitiation meaning satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked.
2: It's so comforting to know that the sincere Christian is promised Jesus as our advocate to sit beside us in front of the Father on our behalf. We're to stand up and keep the commandments of God, even as the standards of righteousness get more relaxed, And seemingly old-fashioned and out of touch with society. So wherever we are, if we've been looking at our spiritual environment and we're not growing in the direction of Jesus' teachings, maybe it's not in the best place for us to be.
1: And that's a very, very, very important point, especially when you have the degrading of society. You know, if you have uh, X number of feet distance between you and society, you know, there's a three-foot distance and you're three Mm -hmm. feet above, and society degrades another two feet, if you're still three feet above you've degraded. You need to be now five feet above. There needs to be a greater distance because the standards of Christ never change. That's what we're really trying to focus on here today. Jonathan, finally, are my Christian beliefs God-driven or are they man-made? The formula
0: for true Christian morality and ethics is simple. Hear the words of Jesus, accept the words of Jesus, apply the words of Jesus, and thoroughly live the words of Jesus. There are no are no exceptions and no exemptions. Am I willing to completely adopt these purely godly standards, even if it means I must let go of humanly comfortable and compromised environment?
1: It's really simple, folks. It really ends up being simple. We want to hear, accept, apply, and live the words of Jesus. And And if we can do that, And we look at the New Testament and we look at the rest of the scriptures, we can see a pattern for living that is acceptable to God through Christ. The question is, am I going to go down that road or do I want to choose a different road instead? What am I going to do with the words of Jesus, with the standards that he set in my life here and now today in my Christian environment? Think about it. Folks, listen, next week we're going to talk about what it means to keep Jesus' words without compromise, how Jesus instructed us regarding giving to others, what it means to enter into the experiences of the brotherhood, and how Jesus taught us to prepare for his kingdom. Next week is the follow-up of what we've talked about here. We love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Next week is following Christ the same as following Christianity. And that will be part two. Don't miss it. We'll talk to you then.